0: I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. My guest today is the photographer Matthew Lifeheight. Matthew approaches photography as both an artist and a curator. In addition to his own work, he has published Matt Magazine, a journal for new ideas in photography since 2010. Matthew also spent three years serving as the photo editor of Vice, in addition to writing for other platforms, including Time and Aperture. In 2017, Lifeheight graduated with an MFA from Yale, where his thesis focused on a set of rejected photographs he originally took on assignment for the Yale Daily News. His work is held by ICP, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and the MoMA Library, among others. I met Matthew one day at his home in Brooklyn, and you can see the portrait we did on Instagram at William Jess Laird, as well as at williamjesslaird.com slash imageculture. Here I am with Matthew Lifeheight.
1: I get my film developed there, and I really love them. What's the name of the Photoshop? Accurate Photoshop. It's in it's it's Fifth Avenue in the Prospect Expressway. It's great. They do a really good job. I know a lot of you know like KJ Cole gets his film developed there. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like it's really it's actually really good. And I just realized that it was going to be an easy subject for a documentary. And Mm -hmm. I was having a studio visit with my student Carlos, at Pratt, who's like a film photography double major, and he was showing me his like film thesis, which is really good, Mm -hmm. and. I was like, I had this idea about accurate Photoshop, and that maybe it would be really easy to make a very, a good documentary about that. And he was, he was like, I thought I've thought of that too. And so we decided we would do it together. And so I'm not paying him; we're like collaborating on it. It's like a 50/50. I'm directing it, and he's shooting it. And then, yeah. I don't know. I think is it, it the first? Is it the first film you've done? Like the first moving image? Uh, I made project? a previous. No, I have another short documentary in post production. That's like a. It's not really. I, it's an. I've been calling it an erotic docudrama. It's kind <laughs> of a softcore porn slash historical. It's about George Platt Lines, who was a photographer of kind of like male nude. He was a fashion photographer in the '30s and the '20s, mm. um, but he was in this kind of three-way. He was in a three-way relationship with these two other men, and I got, like, a grant from Yale to study his papers, which are in their library. And then I got another grant from their, like, LGBT studies department to produce this documentary about it. But I thought that the best way to make a documentary about this, like, dead, gay, erotic photographer would be through some sort of, like... It's like it's kind of a historical reenactment of this, like, three-way relationship. Hmm. Um so you're doing like live action stuff? Yeah, it's all there's like it's mostly reenacted or kind of fantasy. It's that one's really has a loose connection to the facts. It's like but an it's Ar- really more a doc. It's <laughs> very beautiful. No, it's not even as I, lo- I love him. I but I but it has much less information than that. It's mm-hmm. more kind of like a visual. I think it's it was I wanted to make a documentary that could be like visually about the subject and not necessarily like you know, like people talking about or interviews and stuff. And mm-hmm. the Photoshop one will be more straightforward.
0: So you started that while you were at Yale. Mm-hmm. So how was your time there? How did you, you come to do that program?
1: I loved Yale. I feel like I'm the, I don't know. And Because when do you get to use to work on your art mm-hmm. anyway? And there were so many amazing teachers mm-hmm. that I had. Like the faculty there is just really, they bring in really good people. Who is important to you there? collier shore is like my hero i oh, think wow. cool. Cool. <laughs> i don't know i really like her and did you see that
0: new ma- that new cover she just did for uh for, for the it tea it's the tea the time style magazine with judy yeah. chicago i thought that was amazing
1: it was great she does only good stuff i've been working for her sometimes after graduation i think i mean maybe similar to what you're doing after i graduated from RISD, i had i had started the magazine mm-hmm. Matt that i publish I was using it as sort of an excuse to meet people who I wanted to talk to or who I thought, you know, who I liked their work, and it seemed kind of easier to say, like, could we work on something together? Yeah. Then maybe can we just hang out? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And also I started doing interviews for different websites that were called like that were like Matt interviews. Mm -hmm. And I would it was basically the web version of the magazine. Anyway, that's to say that I think I had sort of sought out my own teachers or something in a certain mm-hmm. way. Like I had fig- I had made relationships with mentors who I wanted to know how they had made the work they had made or, you know, how they had had the career they had. And so grad school for me was like, I guess I got a few more people like that out of it, but it was really a chance to like, in the real world, every time you meet with someone, I feel like about your work, usually you have some, um, there you already like each other. You're already interested in what the work is. Mm-hmm. You already are kind of interested in doing something together or something like that. And you rarely get someone who's you know in front of your work and obliged to talk about it who really doesn't like it and i feel <laughs> like that is like and who will say it to your face like and you know usually in the real world people will only say things like that behind your back but yeah. i really appreciate it do people say bad things about your work at yeah Yale? people would say really bad things sometimes because <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes you'd you know like they didn't sign up to have a studio visit with you and you would mm-hmm. think you would end up with 45 minutes with someone who just like
0: fundamentally disagreed with what you were doing. So are these like visiting artists? Are they fellow students? Are they professors? Who, who Yeah, like there?
1: visiting artists or um, yeah, even I don't think, yeah I don't know if any of the full-time professors totally hated what I was doing but there were definitely some, like some visiting critics who just wasn't their thing, which mm-hmm. is fine. I think that's like to learn that you can't make everyone happy and that also that I think this is one of the things I got out of grad school too, is just like, everyone's going to have a different opinion about your work. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, no matter how much you respect someone like Collier is one of the reasons I got into photography because I saw her art 21 documentary, yeah. like in high school. on yes, PBS. I've seen
0: that. Yeah. It's great. It's great. Is and that I thought the one with the, when, when she's doing the wrestling project, she's doing the wrestling project. Yeah, she,
1: al- I mean, they also talked to Gabriella Rosco and it's like about desire and art. And I thought mm-hmm. like, this is what it's all about. Like this, what else is there? And yeah. Here's the thing is that even like, even someone whose work you respect infinitely like that is not going to be able to tell you what your art is about, you Mm -hmm. know, like at the end of the day, it's just, it's, it is like a lonely thing, you know, it's like a thing where you have to find it in yourself and it has to come out of you and no one's really going to be able to tell you, you know, it's good to have, you know, good feedback and good guidance. And I so value the people that I can show work and get honest opinions from, but at Mm -hmm. the
0: end of the day, it's kind of like. You've got to f- find it in yourself. You're at RISD before Yale, right? Mm-hmm. So what do you see as the difference between those environments?
1: I don't know. There's not a lot of photographers that come out of RISD. It's not mm-hmm. really a... Yeah, I've noticed that. Yeah. I went to RISD because I really wanted to. I loved... I had gone to, like, pre-college there, and I thought, mm-hmm. and Providence is beautiful, and I loved... I wanted to go someplace that had actual academic classes rather than some art schools that I had applied to, like, where it seemed like that stuff didn't matter at all mm-hmm. um and at RISD I could take classes at Brown and yeah but there's not Lila Dara went to RISD and then Columbia I'm trying to think oh David Benjamin Sherry did RISD and oh, then yeah. Yale but I can't think of anyone else that did I think RISD was a much more design oriented school mm-hmm. and it you know it, the people my friends who are super successful who went there a lot of them are in industrial design or furniture design or interiors like Adam Hyman yeah. you know like but it was. A, I think it taught me how to make things in a certain way, and
0: that I think I, it has that sort of technical side to it.
1: It's very much like yeah. In the freshman year, I had to like build a boat out of cardboard and row it across <laughs> a lake. Like it was kind of you know it was very. I think at Parsons, so I'm teaching now at Parsons and SVA and Pratt and Yale, and I think Parsons especially is a place where you could go to come out with a very slick portfolio, but maybe it's less hands-on. SVA, that's definitely the case mm-hmm. from what I've seen. Is like much less folk and I think both of those schools also don't have a foundation year where you have to do a lot of figure drawing and I really learned a lot I've been realizing lately that how much I actually got out of figure drawing and all of that tactile like hands-on stuff in the first year because I think that I hadn't really been looking I hadn't really been seeing in my life previously to that and it was like someone for, for me it took like you know like hours of charcoal drawing and nude figures and someone being like no the foot doesn't look like that look what the foot looks like you Mm -hmm. know it was like someone telling me that I had to look harder yeah and and then you realize like wait maybe I haven't you know like I think a lot of people have this realization when they start art school or something it's like everything has been designed like someone designed every single thing in the world and like it's 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 yeah somehow it doesn't um you know I hadn't realized that earlier yeah, anyway. you kind of you
0: kind of break through a threshold, you know? Yeah. And you're like, oh, wow, everything – and everything becomes really interesting once you really, really look at it. You're like, you know? yeah,
1: someone made all the decisions to go into this menu at a Chinese restaurant yeah. and, like, what are the – you know? Yeah. But, yeah, so I think that's what I – Rizzy really taught me how to make stuff and gave me an appreciation for physical things. And, actually, my thesis at RISD was Matt Magazine. I thought I would – I was um, – I did an issue of my own work when I graduated, and – I had published, I guess that was the fourth issue by the time I was out of there. And so you I, started
0: the magazine while you were at RISD?
1: Yeah. It was in my junior year, and I started it to, I th- I felt like I had friends who were doing good work, and, like, mm-hmm. there, I didn't feel like there were other photography magazines where you would see, like, a full body of work by an emerging photographer. Yeah. And I still think that's the case, where, like, even, you know, sort of the, I think the best places to see emerging photography now are probably online, but like in print it's like phone magazine, I think does the talent issue. And then you, with that, you get like 10 or 15 pages of someone's work, which is a lot. But in my magazine, it's like 50 pages of one person's work or, and it's, I usually like it to be someone's first publication or sort of, a, a if it's someone who's more well known, it's like, uh, usually kind of an unknown part of their work or some mm-hmm. sort of little known project or something. And, and but I, yeah, so I started it because I felt like, um, people's early work you know like every I. you always love the early work of an artist you know mm-hmm. it's like usually like rougher and more raw and so I thought there should be a place for that in print magazines because I've always liked print magazines
0: and you're coming up on 50 issues right
1: yeah I've done 47 um in how, next month
0: how is it how's it changed since you since you started
1: it's changed a lot it's like the first issues were stapled together, but it was like, I've always, I've never been interested in, even though I just said I, you know, appreciated learning to make things as far as the magazine goes, I always wanted it to be something that was commercially produced so that it could, I never was interested in printing it myself or binding, you know, stapling it myself because yeah. I always wanted it to be on a bigger scale than what I could produce myself. And so, yeah, it's it, it was right when on-demand printing had gotten good enough that you could reproduce photographs I felt like for the first time in a magazine Um, and then that also seemed like an opportunity that one person could be a magazine because it was I didn't need like a production staff or you know like it and I could do it all on my laptop and have it printed and it still is basically that except when I went to grad school I showed it to one of the graphic design students also at Yale and who is my friend Ben Gans and he really liked the magazine but he thought it was too bad that I was designing it myself, um, which is like <laughs> true. It lo- I mean, it looked like a it's photographer a had designed it. Yeah. It was uh-huh. like, um, but he's really great. He's like a really gifted Swiss designer. And he offered to start designing it for me, which has been amazing because I think it looks a lot more like a real magazine. So he, he designs it now. He designs it now. And so that's been a big change because for the first I think he started designing it at the 40th issue so he's we've done seven together mm-hmm. but for the first 40 it was really just me designing all of them and you know for better or for worse and there were a couple of issues where I had help from different graphic designers I worked with but it was really you know I based the design of it on like Life magazine or like File which was a play on Life or like it looks kind of like Perry Match or something I felt like it just, mm-hmm. just wanted to look like a magazine like red bar it had a red bar yeah. at the top yeah it used to have like this and yeah uh, but I think now it just looks like its own thing and maybe it's not referencing a different design, which I think is nice. I think mm-hmm. Ben gave it. And I also he also switched so that we're printing it at a real printer now, which is nice, where it's, uh, it's just done with like digital offset printing, which is what I had been doing with on-demand services, but now I have more control over... Finally, the cover is matte. It had always been kind of semi-gloss, and <laughs> I think now it's better because it's called Matte Magazine that it sh- can be matte.
0: And tell, me, yeah. tell me about this issue with, uh, with Cynthia Talmadge.
1: Cynthia is the best. She's such a great artist. <laughs> That's like a really great...
0: Did you meet her while um, you were... I think, yeah. Doesn't Adam... I think Adam knows her as well.
1: Oh, Adam's very close with her, and they and she recently moved out of the... They had been sharing kind of a studio space, but mm-hmm. she moved down the block now. Yeah, Cynthia's one of the artists that I would say I admire the most out of everyone that I know, even people that I don't know. I think she's a really... I love her work, and I have always thought she was a great painter, or just a great artist. But she... Yeah, I met her at RISD. We started working together. We collaborated for probably five years. Longer even. Maybe right... I think since, like, right after school, we were making photographs collaboratively. Which I feel like out of that time... Which those are included in this magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some of the better things that I made in those years. And I think she felt similarly. That, like, the stuff that we made together sometimes was really interesting. Yeah. yeah but I don't know. Like, she was coming up you know we kept trying to work together when I was in grad school and she was like coming up to New Haven and like we even I think we were the only people who have ever been we like sat for a critique together as like one entity and like you know uh, It's probably
0: nice to have someone there with you right?
1: (laughs) I guess it was it was also kind of weird because like I think the the critics were kind of like wait but you don't go to school here like why (laughs) But, uh, but it was fun and it was and we had made we used the time to make this big replica of like the room where Sonny von Bulow was murdered in Newport um in a studio in one of the sculpture studios, we built mm-hmm. this replica of her bedroom. I'd yeah. seen
0: a couple of those of that of those collaborative projects i f- I feel like I remember one that was um, that was uh, is it Sharon Tate's bedside table? Yes, was that another one with Cynthia?
1: Yeah, that was another one with Cynthia from it was Sharon Tate's bedside table from the morning after her murder. Uh-huh. They were always kind of like they they were we developed this process of painting an actual. Still life into, like, the negative... It was actually a very painstaking process of figuring out how you could kind of, like, paint gouache onto a subject and then photograph it in a way where when you inverted it in the color darkroom, it would um, turn into kind of a weird, positive version of itself. I don't Mm -hmm. know if I'm describing... It's kind of a... Yeah. I don't know if I'm describing it well. It's it's kind of hard to describe. But we were... So we would set up an elaborate scene and then we would paint it by hand in front of the camera and then take a picture. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of, like, this illusionistic thing that kind of looked like a painting, but was actually just a very straight photograph that was made in the darkroom. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think, so we worked together for a long time, and I actually think that was something that kept my work going, because during that time I had, you know, like I was doing different things to make money, or like I worked at, you know, like Time Magazine for a while, and then at VICE for,
0: you know, years. And sh- is, this, is this right after RISD?
1: Yeah, so right after RISD, there was about a year of unemployment that I called freelancing yeah. and um I was assisting different photographers but I was not a very cooperative assistant I'm not very <laughs> I thought I assumed they weren't hiring me for the heavy lifting and they um they absolutely are yeah and, yeah <laughs> right. and uh, like and I also Carried am not bands. I'm not like a technical person so yeah. I couldn't help anyone with their capture one or something mm-hmm. so I figured people must want must be hiring me for my opinion and yeah. it turned out not to be the case always something that I will absolutely never forget is there was someone like a um a photo editor from a magazine called me after a shoot that I guess I had talked too much during and said um there were a lot of people whose opinions mattered in that room and yours was not one of them uh, <laughs> yeah so I was not a good assistant but I ended up I uh <laughs> I worked at time for a few months and that didn't go very well either i think because i also am not very good at like carrying out someone else's vision mm-hmm. i feel like i wasn't and it wasn't a position that i had creative i was like an intern there and i didn't really have any I, i'm really glad that i did that though just to see how like
0: magazines get produced on like a really large scale so if that's the case it seems kind of serendipitous that you would end up at vice where you did have a really strong creative voice I mean, right how did you how did you land there
1: That was like everything happens through like a random series of coincidences. It was Mm -hmm. like a guy that I had dated who like dumped me, but then, but I think we still are friends and there were, and he, they asked him to do it and he didn't want to, so that he suggested that they could ask me. Mm -hmm. It was a weird thing where like I had a lunch with the editor at that time I was working at a small private photo collection. That was a great job. That was an amazing job because I, I worked for someone who collected famous photographs but also vernacular images and so i would get to i would go into the office and there would be stacks of someone's family albums that she had collected on my desk and i would go through them and decide like what's worth keeping or cataloging it was one of the best things i've ever been paid to do
0: it's kind of a great way to like learn about images you
1: know yeah just to go through thousands and thousands of snapshots from and it was most it was yeah kind of like 20th century like you know because vernacular images don't exist in that same way anymore where it's all of those Mm -hmm. little prints and you know the different way the colors look from different times or the way the black and white
0: ages, And it's, I don't know. And And I'm always so surprised at how, how beautiful these like, like snapshots. I mean, you know, not, not professional images, not art images. um, But when I, when I come across these little, these little prints, like these little, you know, I guess they're sea prints, right. Mm -hmm. Um, Or dye transfer prints that are, you know, from old photo albums, I'm just always stunned at how how beautiful they are, you know, the colors oh, yeah. and the texture of them, you know, I don't mini think mini lab
1: prints, like optical yeah. mini lab
0: prints are so gorgeous. We're not used to encountering those anymore, you know, and they, they really are striking.
1: Yeah. That's one of the reasons that I'm making this documentary about the one hour photos. Cause I'm so interested in when people don't encounter their family photographs that way anymore in like a shoebox, like I did, like what will happen and how are people going to understand what their, like the kind of visual history of their, family or they you know, um, but I took the job at Vice cause I thought it would be kind of more, pub- or I would have more of a voice. I've always wanted to have a voice in yeah. photography. Like I want I've always wanted to have my opinion matter somehow. And so,
0: so the photo yeah. shoots, it didn't matter, but here at Vice it did. It
1: did. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's a good, yeah. It, yeah. Cause I've always felt like I have strong opinions about photography and I, th- I really believe that I'm right <laughs> all the time. And so i thought like yeah and i also think that i know it was a similar thing to starting Matt magazine where i was like i really do and by that time i think actually the reason so i had lunch with the editor which at that time was rocco castoro and he like hired me over lunch he was it was like a weird like he was like so you think you could do this and i was like yeah well i think i've had these kind of scattered like i had interned at the new yorker and i had done this kind of scattered magazine jobs but like I had produced like 30 issues of my own magazine and I think that that's why they hired me. It was because that I could, it was kind of proof that I had like all these, that I had artists that I could bring them. Cause I think that's kind of like a photo editor's role. A lot of the time is to, you know, that I know where the good shit is and I can give it to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still believe that I know, you know, it's kind of, I mean, it's crazy. It is sometimes crazy to see the things that get published in magazines and to think, you know, I know all of these, my students, my, you know, sophomores at SVA, sometimes I think could do a more interesting job than the same photographers from the 90s who are still doing all the photos for Vogue or you know mm-hmm. what I mean like yeah. I really do think and so that was kind of the why I started the magazine uh, why I started Matt too is because I was like I actually think I know a lot of people who are doing really good work mm-hmm. and it's so easy to get overwhelmed and start thinking that you know like everything's been done before and there's you know it's so hard to make something new and actually I think there's so many new things being made that I, I that are really good that it's it's almost overwhelming to keep up with yeah. How much good photography is being made. And, mm-hmm. but so I think there's not that much of it that gets attention. Mm-hmm. So how did, I think your question was, yeah, how did I end up at Vice? And that was the, that was like a, I you can tell I don't have a very straight, clear answers. Um, <laughs> That's fine. but yeah, so I ended up there because, cause I wanted to have more of a voice and I, and it was good. It was, I did that for three years and I thought that was enough time to do it. And I feel like in your twenties, maybe you don't, you shouldn't, do one thing for too long because mm-hmm. I don't know you should just try a lot of stuff I think and like and that's the time in your life when it's okay to do that and or maybe hopefully it's like forever is okay to do that but um that was good I mean it was there was one photo editor there and it was me and so it's on one hand I had total creative control which was awesome and there was very little oversight and I think all of the editors that I worked with were very good about I was the one person there who was the the photo person. And Mm -hmm. so, like, I think they really allowed me to have that be my domain and didn't really... Intrude. I also wasn't that interested in their opinions a lot of the time of, like, you know, like, of course, you (laughs) work with other people on, like, yeah, no, there was, like... But sometimes it was, like, if someone from, like, the marketing team is trying to tell you about, like, you know, why one thing's good and one thing's bad, it's, like, I, you know... I'm not that interested in their, you know because I actually do dedicate my life to like looking at photographs and caring about the just the fine the fine detail I feel very lucky actually that I get to care so much about the the intricacies of photographs or you know like but it's actually something that I've dedicated like more than a decade to and almost you know I do like this publishing stuff within photography and I take my own photographs but I really do feel that I operate only within photography. I don't know even anything about other art mediums, really.
0: So during this time you you graduate from RISD and you're really what you're practicing is you're curating all the work around you. I worked so, at a pot
1: farm in between too for a while in California <laughs> which was great. Sorry. I was curating That sounds like an interesting story. That was when I got fired from time. I moved to California <laughs> for a little while. Like many time editors before you. Right. And <laughs> it was uh important thing to just like step back for a minute and realize that that job when that job didn't work out it felt like a big failing to me because I hadn't super failed at anything before or like no one had told me that I was failing and I think it was a really good reality check to be and and you know and kind of taught me like how high standards are and actually just how office culture works and stuff and so Mm -hmm. I came back and I thought I'm going to invest in my own work and in my magazine because no one can fire you from your own projects Mm -hmm. and And I also can do whatever I want in them. And so I got a job working retail for a few months, even just because I I figured that would pay the rent and I could focus on the things that I cared about.
0: Mm -hmm. I guess I'm thinking if all this time you're sort of looking at everyone else's work and curating things and doing work and publishing, what was the effect on your own, on your own work? What kind of stuff were you producing when you left RISD and how did that change between RISD and and perhaps Yale? Oh yeah. What was it? a, A six year period?
1: yeah I think that's probably right (laughs) um good work I and actually someone asked me this I was my friend Farah and I who I think she said that you also see me she might come by actually but um great Great. she's like one of the best people that I got out of what I really got out of grad school was like a more community and like actually someone like she's coming over to look at new work that I'm making because there's only five people that I trust enough to show someone first and that's like one of them yeah but uh, her work is amazing her work is great I agree Luckily, so do many other people, I feel. So yes. she's
0: kind of, many, I'm, many, many I'm others. not worried about her either.
1: But um, my work has always been something that I do for me, I guess. And it's like, I, so yeah, so Farah and I were in Florida doing this. We did like an artist talk at a small school there together. And afterwards, someone's question was like, one of the students was, "You, it's like, if you look at all of this good photography all the time, doesn't it get overwhelming trying to think, you know, to make work yourself? And it's, it was, I thought it was a great question because yes I f- feel like I seek out and work with the most talented people that I can find and I want those people to be my friends in my community but like it also does sometimes get overwhelming to look at their success or their work and just how co- you know how good some of these people are but mm-hmm. I think that the answer is that like I don't actually make work for other people it's I make art because like I can't not and because I have to do this thing every day that's kind of compulsive and because I feel like I have a lot of things to express and to like, you know, like to get out of me and, and because I've worked in other, I've never actually made money off of my photographs really. I've never, I don't do any commercial work. No one asked me to do like, you know, fashion, not that that pays, but I've always worked with photography in another way that wasn't my own photograph. So mm-hmm. it's my photos have always been able to be kind of like a sacred a pure thing space. to me. Yeah, yeah. Something that I don't know, which is. For better or for worse, but I think yeah. When I worked at Vice, I would commission myself to do things if I thought if there was something that came along that I thought was would be more would be good for me and I could do better than other photographers could. I would just take it, which is what other people who were photo editors before me there did. Like Ryan McGinley or Tim Barber would do shoot assignments. Liz Renstrom, who's the photo editor there now, also mm-hmm. does assignments herself.
0: Do you remember uh, an assignment that you really enjoyed doing?
1: There was like. The gay oil workers of the Bakken oil field in North Dakota. Yeah, I saw that. Which yeah. was great. I loved doing that. Tell me about that. That was like crazy because I had... There were some contacts that... The writer had written the story before and I went there for like four days and was supposed to photograph the people the writer had talked to and it really turned out that no one no one in that... You know, people in the oil industry do not want to be photographed for an article about being gay. You know, like... and Yeah, it's a tough... It was really hard in. and... But it... Um, and so I thought the photos that I got of, you know, that I was, I ended up going on Grindr and, like, asking people to take their photo there. And, like, that was led to some interesting things. And I photographed this one woman. I think, but for me, what, I'm, what I've, am what i that one, there was just one portrait that didn't run with the story that was unrelated to what I was doing mm-hmm. of this. She was aroused about, who was, like, sort of a very beautiful, tough, androgynous-looking woman. And I that and I think to be, like, a queer queer identified woman in that space was actually maybe a little easier than for a man because you could kind of the sense was that it was it would maybe kind of you could be one of the guys on the i don't yeah you know i was just taking photos for this i didn't i i don't know that much about this world but but yeah what i realized i i feel like i used to think that i could go into a environment like that and take photos for four days and have you know do kind of and kind of cover it or at least get sort of the surface or something of but now I really feel like I'm so slow and I don't like you know and it's usually I you know if I'm trying to get one thing I end up with something else or like I I really feel like I could work on a single project for like years and years now and still not express everything that I want to about it you Mm -hmm. know yeah and I feel like maybe it's okay that maybe not every photographer is like built to be kind of like a first responder and like maybe I'm more of like a it's a slow process for me of and of and especially with my own work of like cuz I am very harsh about editing it and like I and I think I experience a lot of failure in my own work. I think m- most of the pictures I take are very really really bad. And for me if I get one good thing out of a week or a month of trying every day, that's pretty good.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I guess what you're talking about is it's almost a it's almost a bit of a side effect of digital culture mm-hmm. because there is like some sort of um you know, I don't don't know if you photograph digitally or, or, you know, with analog technology, but I think that there is kind of a pressure, like if you take a photograph, like you're expected to put it up somewhere or publish it within, you know, a week or two weeks, Mm -hmm. because it's possible to do that. And there's a lot of amazing work that is made really, really quickly. But I guess the reality is that it's, it doesn't always just because you can make something quickly doesn't mean that you actually got it or that you uh, like sometimes if you sit on something and you let it marinate for a while you can start to see it in a a whole new light
1: yeah I just have never been like the kind of artist who could sit in a room and think of the best concept and then go out and execute it like I think it's so much pressure to always be trying to think of the smartest project or the smartest idea and I think it's much more the only way I can really think about working is to just like take photos and try and let them tell me Thing, you know like to like look at them after and you know figure out which ones i like and why i'm interested in them and what it is that i think is good about it and to try and you know like go deeper into that i feel like it's like a more that's the only way i know how to do it you know mm-hmm. like i can't figure i feel like um which is just necessarily a slow process because it takes a lot of you know like weeding things out and looking back and figuring out you know like yeah yeah I took pictures of like the sunset all summer and I thought I was doing something brilliant. It was like right after graduating and I thought never, I'm not going to use one of any of them. I looked, I finally got the film. I shot like 50 rolls of film this summer and got them developed and it's all just garbage. But it's fine. I think I needed to work, I needed to like expel that and like, Mm -hmm. and I think it actually led me to, you know, like, I think I was just even trying to figure out how my pictures would look in color again because in grad school I was using a digital camera and it was all black and white and because of the kind of, need for fast turnaround there, it was, I was using digital.
0: What about the um, the work you did for your thesis at Yale? Yeah, that's. I have
1: that book. Um,
0: yeah, there's only 20 copies of that book, but I really
1: think it's a great book that should be <laughs> published. It's. Um, yeah, I was a staff photographer. When I went to school, I thought, because I liked doing these assignments for Vice, and I thought, but eventually I applied to grad school. I only applied to Yale. I only applied one time, and I was, you know... L- just I don't know how it, I got lucky enough to be accepted because it's everyone is so good when you see you know what the applicants are like um, mm-hmm. and I had been working full time and I hadn't been able to dedicate you know I had been doing my collaborative work with Cynthia which was part of what I applied with I'd been doing some kind of street photography honestly like I don't know I was doing like uh, I was doing whatever I could and I applied with some like commissions that I had done like portraits of musicians I had photographed like weird stuff but yeah. somehow I think. Maybe they could understand that this was what I was able to fit in on the side of my full time job. I so, but I when I showed up at school, I uh, got a job photographing for the school newspaper, um, the Yale Daily News, because I like having assignments and I was interested. Kind of like when you're in, you end up in New Haven, and it's always kind of like, what am I going to photograph in New Haven?
0: I've always thought about like, that like, <laughs> with the with the Yale photographers. If you're living in New Haven, like where do you? Where well, do you, you can start? do
1: like like Richard Mossy would go on like military embeds, like during school like he would be like photographing in africa during the week or something you know like that's so crazy it's really (laughs) wild and but i've always felt like my my work needed to be in front of me you know like like you needed to live near it i've always felt yeah i've always felt like i should for me i'm interested in things that are immediately at hand and like i think that the photograph can be the thing that elevates that into being something special Mm -hmm. and i feel like most of the most moving experiences i've had with photographs have been Kind of plain, you know. It's not like the subject was really the thing that brought the magic to it. It was like the way that someone looked at it. And mm. I, th- like, one I made a, I um, I went on a date with someone in the drama school when I got there, and he was. It was this actor who was very, he's actually really nice, but he's very self confident, and he was saying that he he was like, I'm a good enough actor that I could read the back of a cereal box and make it riveting, you know. And like, I actually think I feel the same way about photography. Like, I should be able to take anything as my subject and make it interesting because of the way i'm photographing it yeah so and that was so i thought so i was like oh i'll just photograph yale i'll photograph like school plays and um the rehearsals for you know ballet and the like a school team. newspaper
0: assignments it was of, it yeah. was just
1: the regular it just gave me a reason to show up at different places and um and you really sporting look, events. as you said
0: before right yeah
1: and it's like usually i would get they would publish a picture of people playing volleyball that i took that you know was what they wanted, but I would get a picture of like the way someone's shirt was changing in the wind or something and that would be for me. You know, like there was usually something actually 50% of the time there was something that I could get for myself out of these
0: situations and 50% of the time it was kind of a bust. But one of the reasons I enjoy doing editorial work in addition to working for myself is is that most of the time if I'm if I'm on an assignment or I'm trying to make a specific picture for someone, the picture I end up giving them probably isn't the one that I like, mm. you know, or I mean, maybe I, I think it, it serves the purpose. But um, oftentimes you do find uh, that these pictures sort of um, it's it's the ones that are the kind of the castaways or the, you know, when you trip the shutter accidentally or um, they're these little moments that you catch when you're on assignment because you are engaged and you're looking and you're there with purpose. And I think that that's a nice position to put yourself in, you know? Yeah, it gives you a reason to be there. I feel like that's it's hard to show up at a place and just be like. I'm an artist, and I'm making photographs for myself. I, I've always found that to be a very high pressure situation. You know, yeah. um, it can be hard to to look and see, you know. I find that when I go to situations with that mindset, I don't take very many photographs. Whereas if I'm, you know, I've never worked for a newspaper, but if I'm, you know, at a volleyball event and I'm shooting for the volleyball newspaper or the, I mean the, not the, you know the mm-hmm. the school newspaper, it's like I'll shoot 200 pictures and mm-hmm. maybe one in there is going to be something I really find special
1: yeah I mean I think that's one of the things that photography does best is when I think when you can catch something that's something that no other medium can really you know like do in the same way where you kind of can catch and I think that's I'm still very traditional in that I believe that that's still at the heart of what we do and like the and what makes photography interesting
0: can you tell me about this picture
1: the yeah that one's called they're all titled with just the newspaper the title of the article they were shot for so that one's called I think it's called. Uh, Yale tops Columbia Bulldogs best in show, uh, and it's uh, <laughs> That's a great title. A great title. Uh, it was the diving team, and this was the the locker room afterward. It was the visiting team's locker room.
0: So this is a picture of a of a, a boy, I guess, uh, in sort of the pool showers, like the communal pool showers, um, looking away from the camera. How did you how did you capture this picture? Um, I just asked. Um so there was like some communication <laughs>
1: there. Yeah, there was some communication. I think I'm not against like, you know, slightly staging something or kind of reconstructing it in order to get in my opinion all, f- you know, photos are completely subjective and I can say that, that now that I don't no longer work for any publications, I th- all all photograph, you know, if you photoshop the hell out of it, it's equally as subjective as if you move the tripod to the left. You know, it's I yeah. think the same, but I yeah, so I have no problem kind of reconstructing a situation. But I guess, yeah, the romantic, more romantic way to talk about it is like, yeah, it was like walking around the locker rooms after the swim meet and this guy was the last one in the shower. And I just asked. Also, I knew that that room, I had, I had taken a picture of that room without the guy in it before because Mm -hmm. the walls, I had heard of this specific locker room as being kind of a cruisy space. Like the same thing about a certain floor of the library that I photographed a lot. A, oh, um, a cruisy space, like a space, a space where you'd pick someone up for like gay sex. Yeah. And yeah. And, um, uh, so, and yeah, so this, and the library stacks were two kind of notorious locations yeah. that I had heard about where things same happened, at, same at Columbia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So there's like, it was kind of a charged space and also the walls just look like leather or something. There was something that I was like, Oh, I just realized I was like, the, okay, the walls are going to photograph really well in black and white things look good but they're wet mm-hmm. I don't know I was just I think and that was but it was like because I had done a different assignment photographing the swim team and I had gone I'd done the same thing but no one was in the locker room so mm-hmm. it was kind of it was another thing where like if I you know that only happened because I had almost done like location scouting before or like mm-hmm. you know it was like I happened over as a product of a long period of time and not something that I could have just done like spontaneously
0: I, I I've always been attracted to that photograph since I saw it I think for the first time at the um at the Yale MFA show at Danziger Gallery. Oh yeah, and it's because I've also always been attracted to those to those like pool communal showers. Mm. I mean, they really have like this weird. Um, it's a very strange environment, and it's mm-hmm. very alluring. And I always think of. I actually see the book over there that Renica Dykstra image. Do you know the one of her exhausted in the in the in the communal shower? I have to look again. No, I don't know that. There's there's I. It <laughs> might be one of my. It might be my favorite one of her pictures. And I think it's one of the first ones she really made that, that feels like a Renegade Dykstra image uh-huh. as we know it. It's something she made. She was in a bicycling accident and was really pretty horribly injured. Hmm. And as part of her rehabilitation, the Dutch, they, love those bikes, they he, can't get enough I, of the bikes. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's awful. I didn't know. Th- um, yeah, she, uh, so she was, she had been working as a, as a, you know, a commercial photographer and then um, had this horrible accident and had to go through a bunch of rehabilitation. So she, swam in the pool uh, to regain her strength and she did this very um very simple very beautiful portrait a self-portrait of her after sort of swimming to exhaustion one day hmm. so she's standing in the swimming pool showers in her bathing suit just completely exhausted and I always ever since I saw that picture I've always been so attracted to that space and for me, it's, yeah, it's, like, this kind of homosocial space that's charged and a space that I
1: kind of always felt like, am I supposed to not find this erotic? Or, like, I you know, like, and... But I love... I've been thinking about Reineken Dijkstra lately because there's not that many people who get to do portraits and have it be their art, you know what I mean? And yeah. not... And I actually love to... I love to do portraits. And I actually think at the base of it I'm probably like a, I would I feel okay calling myself a portrait photographer but mm. I think many people would be offended by that like you mm. know and I, but she mostly does portraits and but I think like what better thing could you do with your life like all of those people are going to die like there's yeah. you know already in my life I've had experiences where I was so grateful that I photographed someone because the, you know people d- you know aren't always around forever and what she does is so important but she manages to make the, the problem with portraits, I think, sometimes is that they're so specific that people find it hard for them to communicate something kind of universal, and I think that's the trick, where she has managed to make the portraits in a way... Like the one with the soldier, where you see him turn into like kind of a hardened
0: at the beginning and the, yeah. the multiple portraits
1: where that you are see him change his... into this kind of like hardened man or like, yeah. it's kind of like a portrait of his changing masculinity or something like, and it's like, and you, it's so powerful. And mm-hmm. I, that's another thing photography does well is like change over time. Like, but yeah, so I, pub- I, and so at the fir- end of the first year I published this newspaper of my Yale work that was a facsimile of the Yale daily news. And it came out in all the same places on campus that the real newspaper came out in and, but it was filled with only the pictures that I had taken that semester, that year that the paper had refused to publish for one reason or another, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because it didn't relate to the story or because it was too erotic or whatever, whatever reason it might be. And then at the end of the second year, I put out this book that's sort of like a a compendium of of about 90 pictures from... Rejected images. From my Yale Daily News work. And then at the end, I, I, you know... I think the idea was that you could sequence the images from totally disparate situations into sort of a melodrama. And I Mm -hmm. think you can, you know, because you can apply things with photographs that never happened. And so it's like, I think you can create, I was, the idea was with the outtakes of kind of the most plain events of daily life in this school was that I could make something that, that I could kind of construct it into a melodrama that had, that had maybe a different story than like what actually might've happened in Mm -hmm. any of the pictures.
0: Before I came over here uh, yesterday, I, I, I called Adam Hyman oh. and I asked him if he had any questions for you, you know, or if he had an, an idea of something oh, we should talk about. Funny. Adam told me that he saw the idea of the artist's muse as being sort of central to, to oh, what you yeah. do. I mean, do you want to, do you want to talk about that at all?
1: Oh yeah. I love to muse people. I love, I mean, that's funny that he thinks well, so he has two of my photos of the same person and so maybe that's why he um <laughs> a little
0: subjectivity There was
1: this one undergrad that I photographed a few times and he has happens to have two of the pictures of him. No, I've always photographed people that I thought were beautiful. I guess I you know, I always photographed my friends and stuff like that, but lately I've actually been going to this territory which is kind of a more traditional artist model kind of like I've been actually hiring figure models that pose for drawing classes and
0: stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, it's more of a formal relationship.
1: Yeah. It's almost like, you know, it's an older model of kind of how Picasso where he was also, I don't sleep with them, but the, um, (laughs) uh, you know, it's kind of like, I pay them a little bit for their time, not much, but they, and they, you know, it's a working relationship where they pose and and I take pictures and, but I do have sort of, I've been photographing all of these. So when I graduated, I moved back to New York and I thought I was so tired of, I felt like I had been trying to like infiltrate secret societies at Yale and like I was photographing, kind of in, you know, I felt like I had access to these spaces. That people don't usually have access to and I felt some obligation to show them or to you know I felt like I would like to show them Mm -hmm. but it was a kind of an exercise in photographing people who didn't want to be photographed necessarily Mm -hmm. or you know or have that their images shown and in this context and so I thought it was just so nice that when I moved back that there are all these you know mostly like gay men on Instagram and you know, Tinder and Grindr and all these apps and stuff where you could just get someone to pose for you who just wants to be seen. Like, there are so many people who just in New York who just want attention. So yeah, I started doing these shoots in the past year that are kind of like, I stage little funerals for them. I invite a guy over and I, you know, and this is sort of what I've been doing lately is where I have, like... I jokingly have been calling them twink funerals, but I think that that's maybe offensive to the people who are in them. And I don't mean it that way. They've all been very nice, but, um, it's usually like young gay men in their twenties in some sort of dark floral environment. And I've been.
0: Wait, so how is it a
1: funeral? I mean, they're on the ground and they're covered in flowers. Um, eyes opened or closed. you know, it's like, usually I'm trying to draw out, usually there's one frame. Cause it's like, i f- I feel like I'm, I loved their portraits mostly. These are very close up, and yeah. like the shoots are done like nude mostly, but they're not. I, I'm really just showing people's faces, mm-hmm. and they're the photographs are actually very dark. Like the they're I'm using, I'm really underexposing the film with the idea that I just want like an image that's barely holding on to the negative, and it's yeah. kind of like so I get these very dark things where you just see kind of parts of people and.
0: What is the nature of that interaction? Like, I'm always very curious when I mean you can it, it, the nature of any, an interaction with with any portrait is always interesting because it is a sort of dance, you know, between yeah. where you're kind of dealing with uh, with some ideas about like what it, what you're supposed to do when you're in front of a camera, what you're supposed to do when you're behind a camera. How have your experiences been?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's different. I yeah, I had started when I first moved back to Brooklyn. I had started trying to find models on Grindr because I thought they would be more willing to give me something kind of sexual off the bat but in Mm -hmm. fact I found that not to be the case like and that you know finding people through Instagram or people that I know from many different places is often more reliable actually and um but the interactions are all different like they're all you know I like meeting some of them are really sweet guys and like they're all actually you know and they're giving me their time to do this and often I met with many of the shoots nothing comes of it that I think I can use but then every once in a while you know and I think it's like a it's a working process that I've found, because I do, I think these guys are beautiful, but I also think I've been casting people who I think look like they could ruin your life, or, like, they're. Kind, it's, like, you know, like, Bosie, who, Oscar Wilde's, the evil twin who ruined Oscar Wilde's life, like, uh, and I think they're all, they all have kind of a Bosie look about them, these people, who are kind of, because I think there's, like, what does that look? It's like the dark side of sexuality where you might lose control or something. You know what I mean? Kind
0: sort of... Yeah,
1: there's kind of some... There's like a danger about them yeah. where they're these beautiful young men, but it's like there's... A, I often... It's kind of like a... The allure is um sort of the allure to the loss of control that comes with sex or to the, yeah. the darkness of like... Which is a scary thing. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I think absolutely. it's there and... Uh, and do you feel that in
0: the interaction? I mean, is that like a... Is that there?
1: I don't know. It's like I sometimes... I do... I am super interested in the idea that you could have a very professional relationship, like a very professional interaction with a model, but through, you know, the way that you directed and the kind of the way that you make the interaction, you can come out with something that looks as if there's a really strong erotic charge or there, that there's like a, some kind of connection that, but you know, I like that I could conjure that in a photograph. Sometimes, I mean, the, one of the best interactions was there's this guy, Adam, who came over and I had explained it as sort of a funeral because I I want people to be prepared that I'm not trying to make something flattering. Like, I don't... My friend Will Simmons has this term, thought photography, like T-H-O-T, which is where you just take pictures of hot guys on Instagram or something, you know, like, and then, uh, Which I could name a few. Which are
0: are flattering pictures? Yeah. Yeah. There's
1: one called Gerardo Vismanos who does that. Mm -hmm. I'm always shady, but there's, um, anyway, there's a bunch of them out there and I don't want to be that. And so actually I showed some of the pictures to Collier Shore and she, that was on the early side and that was her. She's like, how are you going to make this just not? hot guys in your backyard. <laughs> and so I'm trying really hard to make it, you know, And I, but I actually, anyway, so I do, I, I describe it as a funeral and I tell them it's going to be, you know, I'm not trying to make something flattering. You're going to, yeah. I'm going to make you be like wet and on the ground and covered in leaves or something. And
0: you want someone uh, to be game.
1: Yeah. I want someone to be game, but yeah, so I, but this guy came over and he, you know, I described it as a funeral and he was like, well, it's interesting. You asked me to do this. Cause actually like a year ago, this month, my, my, sister died of um, an opioid overdose I think he said and like and so the idea of doing I thought maybe that's why you'd ask me like that the idea of doing this funeral seemed like kind of appropriate this time of year or something Mm -hmm. and it's like actually I end up just using a headshot it's not in my mind I'm having funerals but it's actually just kind of these very dark portraits I am really I feel like lately so many so much photography all photography maybe is metaphorically about death and I've just become kind of obsessed in the past very rolling bar six months even well yeah of course but it's just the truth that it's like yeah. always every photograph's a little bit sad and a little bit morbid and melancholy because it's you know that time has passed but yeah. um i've been thinking so much about this and i think i would actually like to photograph death more f- in the face you know what i mean like i would like to actually face up to that and not have my you know i think you know i think that what i'm doing is about death and all portraits are uh, you know involved with mortality but then i actually want the work to be actively about that in a way that it's not yet. So I'm still trying to figure out how to photograph death more squarely.
0: We've talked about Collier Shore. Is Peter Hujar someone important to you?
1: He's my favorite photographer. If I had to pick someone, he's the best ever, which was interesting going to his show at the Morgan with my, I took my SVA class there. And one of the students said, this person is not an artist. And I thought that was interesting because what was the, uh, what was the, It was just that I think it's hard to see, for some people, maybe kind of the authorship in those photographs at first because it's so straight. They're so... I think that's another one where there's no fireworks. There's nothing... There's not usually, like, a spectacular event, although some of the subjects are very outlandish. It's kind of just very... It's ultimately photographic, that work, I think. Like, Peter Hujar's work is so involved with just the fine details of the photo the photograph and how it's printed and the the way that the interaction of that portrait has been carried out and you know like the it's about it's it's like I'm having trouble expressing it but it's like I think what this student was saying was like you know when you look at Gregory Crudson or someone it's very easy to see how that's authored or like what you know how he's an artist and how he's and I think it's this same like age-old argument of like well what you just took that picture you you just took it you know it's a snapshot or something Mm -hmm. I straightened her out we agreed by the end of class that it was (laughs) a great show but no I love his work and I have done a few interviews with the owner of his estate and all these things about him oh interesting Um,
0: who owns who owns the uh estate
1: Stephen Koch is who he left his work to, who is a Columbia professor and a writer, and he, I guess, debated leaving his work between Vince Aletti and Stephen and he chose Stephen.
0: Yeah, I, I just, I, I brought um, Peter Hujar up because you're saying, you know, photography has something intimate, an intimate relationship to death, and I, you know, especially oh, now yeah. when I see when I see Peter Hujar's images, I mean, that's one of the first places I go. I think of, I think of a lost generation of artists and. Um, I see a lot of death in that work, even though a lot of it is about youth and these, uh, this kind of spirit there, but I, I do also see this kind of sense of loss. And...
1: Well, the only book that came out in his lifetime was called Portraits in Life and Death. And, oh, you know, yeah. it's um, wow. half of it is dead people, actually. And he was looking in the catacombs in Palermo, I think, at mummies. I've been trying to figure out how to... But it's like young people die every day. You know, like people... That was one of the. That was a shocking realization to me in my twenties. I guess I'm kind of been like retrospecting my twenties because I'm turning thirty in June, and I've been thinking like that was one of the biggest shocks of my life that like people who seem totally healthy in the prime of their life can just totally drop out, you know? And like I want to find some way of expressing that more directly. Or yeah, I'm always chipping away every day at my mm-hmm. own work, and then I have this like the ma- the magazine I do kind of in the background. Like it's always been it's maddening if all you can focus on all the time is your own work. Like I think it starts to get a little claustrophobic. And so it's Mm -hmm. nice every once in a while to be able to kind of shift
0: over and do this or like, um, I think it's great to have a place where you just serve as the platform for someone else, you know, or where you can really be invested in other people's ideas. I mean, that's, that's a big reason why I do this, you know?
1: No, totally. I think it's like, I've also learned a lot from working with other artists and having conversations with people and doing interviews. And each issue is sort of an investment, I think in someone's work of you know like my energy and my time and mm-hmm. so I think when I do the 50th issue I'm going to have it's going to be sort of a big size I want it to look like it's just sort of like an over like a Honey I Shrunk the Kid sized map magazine that's like really large and thick and it'll be everyone who's I'll invite everyone who's ever contributed to it to um, Put something in. have something in but something current because it's kind of like I think the point of the magazine is like It's not always like, this is the best photography I could find to show you. It's Mm -hmm. like, I think this person is doing something interesting and it might develop in a certain way or like, you know, like I think it's usually that I think there's, that I see something in someone's work and it's like on its way to being something. And many of the people who have been
0: in the magazine have gone on to do really amazing things. So the magazine, you can get it at Printed Matter and MoMA PS1, right? Yeah, it's pretty much, it's very low distribution. Yeah, but those are, talk about, I mean, those are the best places to to distribute, I mean, hands down.
1: Yeah, Printed Matter was the first place I tried to sell it, honestly. I took it, Mm -hmm. I was really nervous about even going into that store because I love that place. Yeah, it's great. I think the first, there's this guy, Keith Gray, who I, I was the first person that I um, talked to there. And then Shannon, who recently passed away, uh, was very supportive of my magazine for years, you know, like, for the past, um, you know, was always, like, inviting me to be in the book fairs that he curated, and I think, like, many people, I think many people had a similar experience of him, where he was just someone who was very invested in fostering a community and really appreciated projects that were supportive of younger artists and where someone was able to, I think he really cared about being able to express yourself without mediation, and I think small publishing is one way to do that, even zines, you know, are Mm -hmm. really you're able to express yourself very
0: directly. Matthew Lifeheight, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much to Matthew Lifeheight, and also a special thank you to Adam Hyman. This show is produced by Sarah Levine, and our music is by Jack and Eliza. You can see more of Matt's work at matthewlifehite.com, and you can find Matt Magazine at MoMA PS1, ICP, and Printed Matter. And remember, you can see my portrait of Matt on Instagram at William Jess Laird, as well as on our website, williamjesslayer.com slash imageculture. Thanks so much. See you next week.